0: 1 Kings 11, and I title this chapter Solomon in Ruins. You recall the the three lessons that we want to take away from this, and that is the pictures that we've seen about the tabernacle, the the temple. Those are pictures of heaven that God wants us to see uh, uh, slowly and gradually what it means and what it's like getting back into the presence of God. So. We looked at that and we understand how these are all tied together to get us to the, in heaven with the presence of God. There's numerous references of these in the scripture. Number two, there's two things that loom quite large in the Old Testament. As you're studying the New, go back to the Old and you, will, you can't help but see references to the uh, exodus of Egypt and also that of the temple. And when I say the temple here, at this point, number two, we're not talking about merely the building. We're talking about all the worship that is involved with the temple worship and sacrifices and so forth, anything related to the temple. And then number three, we see how the temple, though we fast forward in the New Testament, the temple is pales in comparison to that of the church. And how Solomon and his glory pales in comparison to that of Christ himself, though they are figures of such. All right, where are these words found? And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple thereof. Where are those words found? Revelation, what chapter? (laughs) Revelation sounds like something that would be toward the end of Revelation, doesn't it? Revelation 21 and verse 22. I saw no temple therein. Now understand, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple thereof. They are the temple. See, that's our point number one. God is taking us, showing us pictures of getting back in his presence. Revelation 21, verse 22 says, There is no temple there, for they are the temple. We're back in their presence, you see. All right, let's go to our text for this evening, 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. And as you read verse 1, it's apparent to me, anyway, that Solomon appears to love Any woman, as long as it's not an Israelite woman. Pharaoh and all the women mentioned are not of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Verse 2 of the nations. I want you to notice in verse 2 through 4 how many times we're going to see the word heart mentioned. Verse 2 of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go among them, neither shall they come among you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And I I would submit to you that the idea of love in verse one and verse two is not the idea that we would understand love to be. For how could you love this many women in the most genuine type manner? The latter part of verse 3, he says Solomon clave to these in love. There's a lot more going on here than the love as we would define it. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. There's the word heart again. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. So right here at the outset, you understand that the, the writer is trying to get us to understand that Solomon has a what problem? He has a heart problem, doesn't he? This doesn't sound like the same Solomon that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 9, where they're dedicating the temple and he had such a, an eloquent prayer and worship there to God. This does not sound like that same Solomon, does it? Solomon has a heart problem. The idea of foreign women, in Exodus 34, verse 15, God told them as they were getting ready to go in, to prepare to go into the land of Canaan, he said, I don't want you taking daughters of those nations from which you're going. I don't want you to take those daughters and give them to your sons. Again, he said the same thing pretty much in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. They've gone through the wandering in the wilderness, and here again Moses is telling them the exact same thing. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, he says, Do not take daughters of this land for your sons. And certainly the same would hold true for the sons. Don't, don't give them, uh, don't take sons for your daughters and, and vice versa. So here is an explicit commandment for the Israelites. Now, you might recall in 1 Kings 9, God had appeared to Solomon. He told him the same thing in regard to the idols. Stay away from the idols. Expressly told him that. Now, let's get back to our text here in verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the mouth that is before Jerusalem and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And so did he for all his foreign wives, who burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Now, the temptation of some is to say that, well, Solomon just built these places for his wives and didn't have anything to do with it. But I would also submit to you that that is not true. The, The phrase that we're going to see here in this paragraph Such as, uh, I think it's in verse, well, it's actually in verse 10. We'll go to verse 10 just briefly and then come back. He had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. This idea, this phrase, going after other gods, we would see that in passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 14. When you go after other gods, that is to go after them and accept them and uh, worship them in some form or fashion. And I'm not going to tell you that necessarily that Solomon bowed down at every one of these temples. But whatever he did, whatever measure and degree that he was involved in this is not acceptable to God in any stretch of the imagination. And I would say that he apparently worshipped them. Verse 6 says, Solomon went not fully after the Lord Jehovah God. I would think there's apparently what I would call blending, and that's what many times would develop. You'll see this in, uh, well, in the rest of Kings. In Second Kings, you'll see that the people worship many gods. They would, they would worship Jehovah God, and they would also worship idol gods. They would blend all this together and come up with some system of religion that they felt good about. And verse 6 there, went, verse 6 says, He went not fully after the Lord as David his father did. Now, let's look at uh, our outline here. So far, and you'll have to pardon me because I'm, again, without my monitor here. Verse 1 through 8. Solomon loved many women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, he clearly disobeyed God. That's clearly expressed for us in the scriptures. He disobeyed when they were told you will not take, should not take foreign wives. 700 wives, 300 concubines is beyond any of our imagination. Only think about it in the perspective of kings in that day and time showed their status by having a large harem of women. And if you understand that, then you understand we've we've seen how Solomon's glory and splendor exceeded that far above all the kings of the earth. So apparently he thought that he needed to have a harem this big to match that as well. His wives turned his heart from God, and Solomon did nothing but cater to their idolatry. Now let's look at these gods that are mentioned here in verse 7 and 8. First of all, the, the god of Ashtoreth this would be what you might be more familiar with seeing is the Asherah, the female goddess. This is the goddess of the Sidonians, the goddess of love and war. She's the female co- counterpart to Baal. Baal is the male god that would be you'll see it later in scripture. The god Milcom would also be called Molech in certain places. This is the god of the Ammonites known to uh, require sacrifice of their children to, to him. And certain, certainly this is all dreamed up by, by men. This is not anything required by their god, so to speak. But Chemosh is the god of the Moabites and also at times would require human sacrifice. Now, any definitions we put on their characteristics are somewhat fluid because depending on the time frame you're looking at and depending on the people that worship that God, they could attribute certain characteristics to their God depending on whatever they want. So you see even that in and of itself, do we worship and serve a fluid God in that sense? God is the same always, isn't he? To people, the Canaanites, God, their God is, is always fluid, always changing what he is over, such as the sun or weather or fertility or war or love. And all of that can change somewhat over time and over the given people at a certain time. Now well, let's, uh. Now, let's go ahead and look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 17. We've referred to this several times. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17. There's a commandment here for kings, only he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he may multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto him, you shall not henceforth return no more that way, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that he turn that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Notice in those verses horses, wives, and silver and gold, expressly forbidden by God. And we see we saw in the last part of chapter nine, God was uh, Solomon was willing to go to the ends of the earth to capture gold and bring it back. End of chapter ten, he went to Egypt. To so multiply horses to himself. And now in, here in chapter 11, he's willing to multiply wives to himself. So if you look at Deuteronomy 17, you look over in your margin, you will see, if you look very closely, you'll see the picture of Solomon there. He is there. He is the picture of that verse, isn't he? Now let's go back to our text, 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's make a, a couple of applications here from the first paragraph. We don't necessarily have see a person with a problem with polygamy, but I want you to notice something here that I think is certainly an application that can be made from this chapter. Let's forget just a moment about the, necessarily the number but where is Solomon obtaining his wives from foreign peoples? book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 has a very broad application, I believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, we see the phrase, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. I feel like that, that has a very broad application, not just, not just for marriages, but certainly does apply to marriages. For he continues in that Second Corinthians 6, verse 14, he continues, for what fellowship have righteousness and iniquity? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what portion hath a believer with an unbeliever? what reasonable sense does it make for people of God to bind themselves with those that are not believers? And we would look at passages like this and say, well, maybe we would make the modern-day application. You need to look for a Christian to marry. We teach our... Children, you need to look out for a Christian to marry someday. Well, I would submit to you that that's not enough. What do you mean by that? I think that we need to teach our sons and our daughters that you need, need to be looking for a faithful Christian to marry. Somebody that's strong, a strong Christian, Not just someone that has been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, that's not good enough. We know that, don't we? I look back over the many years that I've seen people that I know of, even some that are related to me, that have been satisfied with having someone that's simply been immersed in water. I'm not discounting that, but I hope you follow my thinking here. It is not enough to simply tell our sons and our daughters to marry someone that is Christian. We must tell them that they marry someone that is strong and faithful and someone that will help them get to heaven. And I don't mean to be insensitive to anyone here. I think you would understand where I'm coming from, and if I could voice this on behalf of many, many people that I know, and not just here, many people that would love to be able to have the opportunity to tell young people to make sure you marry a good, strong, faithful Christian. What happens when you are not keeping the standard there is many years go by and it gets difficult. The spouse wants to go somewhere else on Sunday morning, Or Sunday afternoon, and they're encouraging you, encouraging you, and after a while, years of that just wear you down, don't they? And I know we've got people in here that may not have sons and daughters at home, but I'm sure you can find somebody in your life that you can help influence in this matter your influence is still viable. You think, well, I've raised my children. Well, you still can influence other people in this matter. It's such a critical thing. Some people say, uh, you know, the person you marry determines 90% of your happiness. Well, I think it's much more than that. Probably 99% of your happiness, and it determines where you spend eternity. It's very critical. Any thoughts or comments on that? Does it, did it matter how, does it matter how many wives you have? Do you have to have that many wives for there to be a problem? Do you have to have a thousand wives for this to be an issue? No. We don't, so we don't need to compare ourselves to Solomon and say, well, that's not a problem. It, the application is the foreign Women, yes.
1: I agree with what you said. Uh, my, my comment's a little bit different, <clears throat> kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier, and it dawned on me, and it, and it's very disappointing to think of the man that we think of as being the wisest man, save perhaps for the Lord himself when he was here, And and yet it seems that he was so enamored with experiencing things and you read through Ecclesiastes all these things that he experienced and yet you know he came back and said well you know that that was all vanity Uh, and and hope hopefully this was a lesson but unfortunately it was a bad lesson for his sons and, and those afterward but I think it's a good lesson for us to learn because no matter how smart we think we are or how Wise we feel that we might be, I think there's a big lesson here that says we don't have to experience things in the world to know whether they're wrong or not. Mm -hmm. He should have known. Mm -hmm. He should have had people telling him, hey, the law says this, God says this. Uh, He might have, I don't know. There's so much we don't know in the background, but. I think the big lesson might be that we don't need to experience, and you can fill in the blank, Mm -hmm. drunkenness, inebriation on drugs, um, high from street racing, um, all kinds of things, you know, whether they're a sin or whether they're just being crazy. But we don't have to experience things like that to know that some things we're told are wrong, or they have the appearance of being wrong. And we ought to just take God's word for it and say, you know what? That, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I, not only do I not want to try to experience that anyway, I don't want to even get close to that because mm-hmm. that's what happened to Solomon. Mm-hmm. He got too close. And who was it that said, can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So... Um, and, and and we're all susceptible to it. Yeah. I'm making the comment. I'm sure there's things in my life that are the yeah. the same way. And I, you know, you wish you could undo things, but you can't. So um, we need to kind of look out and see what's coming, and know, hey, man, that that sounds like a Solomon. I, I mm-hmm. can't do that.
0: Mm-hmm. We have. Uh uh, part of what you're saying is well uh, goes to the idea too of, of think about think about how uh, again I go back to chapter nine where Solomon was leading the people in worship and dedicating the temple such a wonderful worship service there and the people of Israel were at a high and we see what happens here and anyone can fall. No matter how strong they are, part of, part of this ties in with what you're saying. No matter how strong we feel like we are, how long we have been faithful, any of us, me included, can be right there, one step away from falling. And let this be the warning, a passage like this, We shake our heads and we go, how could that happen? Well, gradually, and uh, it can happen. Any other thoughts on that? Yes.
2: So this is just a uh, continuation
0: or fulfillment of the warning that God gave the people of Israel back in Numbers chapter 35 in... um,
1: Verse 52, he
0: says, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants from the land before you and destroy their pictures and destroy
1: all their molten images and pluck down all their high places. And then we saw, you know, Solomon not only built them temples, but then it
0: goes on to say in verse 55, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall come to pass that those that you let remain will be pricks in your eyes and thorns on your sides, and they shall vex you in the land where you you dwell. Mm Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, reminds me again of 2 Corinthians 6 you go on to that passage and he says come you out from among them be clean, now, come out from among these people there's a separation between the holy and the common the holy and that which is not holy it, just like you said we've got to separate ourselves from the world anything else? okay We'll continue with our text. We got one back here. I'm sorry, I wasn't looking your way. Uh,
2: just a thought, goodness. Um, we think of the large things like he was explaining a while ago, like drugs, drinking, speed racing, whatever, but there are so many tiny things, you know, taking pins from work, playing the lottery, and using the excuse, well, it's for the education. There's so many small things that can do the same damage as large things like drugs and whatnot. And um, I was with some friends one time at lunch. As an example, they were all going to the place nearby to buy lottery tickets. And they said, "Aren't you going to buy lottery tickets?" And I said, "No, I don't gamble. I don't do lottery." And they kind of kept on, and I said, well, one thing, I don't care about doing it, and it's against my religion, I don't believe in doing it. And the girl said, she said, well, it's against my religion too, but I just ask forgiveness after I do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was the silliest thing I'd ever heard. But I thought, well, that's, you know, if that's how you feel about it, then that's how you feel about it. But there are many tiny things that we can do on a day-to-day basis that are sinning yeah. You know, that aren't as drastic as maybe we think mm-hmm. drugs, but it's, it's still a sin yeah. on the same level.
0: Very good. All right. Uh, verse 9, we continue, The Lord <clears throat> was angry with Solomon. So we see God's reaction to seeing all this. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away. There's that idea of the heart again. Verse 9, his heart was turned away. From the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared unto him twice. Verse 9, he appeared unto him twice. He appeared unto him chapter 3 and chapter 9. And actually, in chapter 6, an angel or prophet, one or the other, appeared to him uh, as well in addition to that. Verse 10, he had commanded concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore, the Lord said, Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, thou hast not kept my com- my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend or tear away the kingdom from thee, and I will give it to thy servant, notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for whose sake? For David, his father's sake. Now that's going to harken back to Second Samuel seven, where we see the promise to David. We'll speak of that in just a moment. For thy father, uh, David, thy father's sake. But I will rend it out of thy, out of thy hand, uh, the hand of thy son. I will not rend away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to thy son, for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. If you go back and look at 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, God promised David that his throne would last. And if there was a son that he had that committed iniquity, that he would be chastised with the rod of men. 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. So, and also you would see that there's references there in that passage, 2 Samuel 7, that the throne would last forever. And it would last until Christ would come upon the earth. But here in the meantime, when we have people like Solomon that break the covenant, then God is going to fulfill that promise in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, that he would send men to punish or chastise kings such as Solomon. Now, let's see if we can catch up on our outline here. God's anger, his punishment, the disobedience here is highlighted. There leaves no room for doubt that God is displeased of his disobedience. He will rend the kingdom from Solomon, all but one tribe. And actually what would happen is Judah, the predominant tribe in the south, would swallow up, as it were, Benjamin. And we'll see a map about that later. And they would become the southern kingdom. And God says you will do this for uh David's sake now let's continue in our reading here we're going to skip over a few verses here but now God has determined what he's going to do and he says he will raise up verse 14 an adversary unto Solomon Hadad the Edomite he was one of the king's seed in Edom and it goes on into a history we won't read all this but apparently what happened this young very young boy at the time of David at the time David conquered that area He is ushered out of Edom and finds refuge in Egypt, of all places. So he finds refuge in Egypt. He grows up there, and lo and behold, he is given a wife there, one of Pharaoh's sister-in-law. Apparently, that is given to him for a wife. He grows up there and hears that David has died, and he says, it's time for me to go back home. Maybe it's safe now. So it's time for him to go back home, and apparently he is allowed to do that. And Pharaoh says in verse 22, but why would you leave? You, you, know, you have all that you need here. You do not lack anything here. And he said, I don't lack anything, but let me go. Let me depart. Verse 23, God raised up another adversary, and what is his name? Rezon. Rezon, R-E-Z-O-N, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zoba. And if you continue reading in verse 25, the latter part of verse 25, this man would apparently set up his base in Syria, and what would become the, the greater uh, dominant and enemy of Israel, the Syria, kingdom of Syria. So now we have a enemy in the north. Syria and we have an enemy to the south in Edom and now we see one inside Israel itself. In verse 26 who is the next enemy that God sends to Solomon? Jeroboam. Jeroboam. This is an adversary from within so God's giving him a, an enemy in the north, enemy in the south and an enemy from within. He's got him covered all different directions. Verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, he also lifted up his hand against the king. And this is the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. There is something about, and it's really not clear here in verse 27, exactly what the problem was but Solomon built Milo. If you recall, we talked about Millo. Apparently, this is some in, in, uh, fortified area there around the city of Jerusalem. He repaired the breach of the city in verse 27 that had been from David, his father. And if you'll go on forward, and I'm not sure exactly what you're studying uh, the rest of the quarter, but just take a quick glimpse into chapter 12, verse 4. Rehoboam is now... Uh, being set up as king in Israel. Chapter 12, verse 4, he's, they said, they complained to Rehoboam, they say, thy father, this is Solomon, thy father Solomon made our yoke grievous. You remember all the, think about all the building endeavors that Solomon involved himself with. Apparently it was just a massive effort of building after building and and Efforts to do such required men and many men. Labor required tribute. And apparently, these people have not forgotten about it because they remember all the hard, rigorous labor that Solomon required of them. And they were quite irritated about it. Now, if maybe that's what Jeroboam is recalling here as we go back to our text in verse 27. Or it could be I, I, there is a thought, perhaps that it's uh, Ephraim is to the north. Perhaps this was one of the one of the main ways that the Ephraimites got to Jerusalem. I'm not sure if if that Solomon was closing that off or if it's a mixture of that. But nonetheless, Jeroboam is not happy with Solomon, and he already has this anger towards Solomon. And God is just using him as a rod to chastise Solomon. Remember that phrase? We talked about that in 2 Samuel 7. He's using men to chastise the kings, and that's what's happening here. So uh, God has determined what he's going to do, and the prophet, verse 30, a prophet Ahijah comes and meets Jeroboam, he lays on him a new garment. Verse 30, Ahijah lays uh, a new garment on him, and he read it in 12 pieces when he saw Jeroboam. And he said, here, Jeroboam, you take 10 pieces, and uh, God is showing him the symbol that he will tear the kingdom, verse 31, out of the hand of Solomon, and will give 10 tribes to you, Jeroboam. But, verse 32, he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake. There again, that's repeating what we saw earlier in verse 11 and 12. That's basically a repeat of that. So Solomon's son will receive the two tribes. And then Jeroboam will receive the ten tribes. Verse 33, because that they have forsaken me and have worshipped the Ashtaroth. The goddess of the Sidonians worshiped Chemosh and Milcom or Molech and have not walked in my ways. God raises up adversaries. Hadad, the Edomite, Rezon of Syria, Jeroboam of Ephraim, and all three of these areas would dog the people of Judah for many, many years to come, not just here in the near future. For how many years would Syria be their enemy? Many years. And Edomite, as Judah went off into captivity, as it were, Edomite was just laughing, watching them go off into captivity. So these enemies would be be long enemies for the people of Judah. Now, let's continue in verse 33. As we left off there, God gives him the reason. God gives Jeroboam the reason. Now, what's going to be interesting about this in verse 33 through about verse 36? Through the prophet Ahijah, God is giving Jeroboam some reason about obedience, transgression, and punishment, isn't he? He's saying, Look at what happened to Solomon. Now, if you were Jeroboam, listening to Ahijah, what conclusion are you probably urged to come to? Obey. For Jeroboam, after all, is of who? Who is Jeroboam? He's an Israelite, isn't he? He's one of the people of God. So he's going to listen to this, and it's certainly much different, I would suggest, than those uh well god probably didn't come to hadad and rezon to raise them up he just raised them up to jeroboam it's a little different jeroboam is an israelite he's one of the people of god so he's going to hear a little sermonette about obedience and about what happens if you don't obey so let's go on to verse 34 here, Howbeit, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. I will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose who kept my commandments and my statutes, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee even ten tribes. Well, that sounds pretty good if you're Jeroboam, doesn't it? And unto his son will I give one tribe, that David, my servant, may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. And I will take thee, Jeroboam, verse 37, I will take thee, and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. But I ask you, does it end there? What happens next? is a conditional promise, isn't it? It's just like we saw with Solomon. God is giving Jeroboam the same conditional promise. Verse 37, or verse 38, it shall be if thou wilt hearken at all that I command thee and will walk in my ways and do that which is right in my eyes to keep my statutes and my commandments as David my father did that I will be with thee and will build thee a sure house. So you see that promise to Jeroboam is conditional. Jeroboam, you have to obey. Jeroboam is an Israelite. He has to obey. It wasn't very long though we go forward into the rest of kings and he was all too willing to draw a line and say, you know, we'll build you a, place in Bethel to worship. It wasn't very far at all from Jerusalem to Bethel. And we will build you a place in Bethel. You can worship here. You don't ever have to go to Jerusalem anymore. So it wasn't very long before Jeroboam was going the way of Solomon himself. Verse 39, I will, I will for this afflict the seed of David, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, and he fled of all places again to where? To Egypt. So, let's see, as we reflect on what's happened here, Solomon has sought after gold, multiplying gold, multiplying horses, multiplying wives. And God raised up adversaries, and for each of these three, raised up an adversary for him. Hadad, Rezan and Jeroboam. So Solomon has this on every side. And even in his lifetime, Solomon understood, verse 40, he understood what was going on, that he was losing his control, losing his power. Uh, sought to kill Jeroboam because of this. Now let's look at a map here just briefly. I want you to look at the, maybe the top of the Dead Sea. If you look at the top of the Dead Sea, you'll see Jerusalem here. Perhaps you can see it just to the left there. You'll see the tribe of Benjamin. Above that, that would be absorbed with Judah. And then just to the north of that is Ephraim. That is the predominant tribe in the north. And that would become, basically, it would swallow up the whole northern kingdom. What you have is kind of a dividing line, about so. And then in the north, you have what would become Israel. And you'll see this even really as we get to the next couple of chapters in your reading the next couple of chapters, the kingdom would divide. The northern kingdom would become Israel, and the southern kingdom would be called Judah. And as we close this, I want to thank you for the class, and I have tell you that I've thoroughly enjoyed the class, thoroughly enjoyed this study with you. Looking into the text and... uh, I guess we better stop there. It's just about time to end, but, but I do appreciate the study and, uh, and all your comments and thoughts and participation in the class.